Hello, and welcome to Criterion by the Numbers, our ongoing appreciation of the films in the Criterion Collection. I'm Cole Rolain. And I'm Bobby Munoz. Join us as we examine their DVD library and discuss what sets this series of important classic and contemporary films apart in both content and presentation. Okay, welcome to episode one, our first proper full-length episode. And today we are going to discuss Jean Renoir's The Grand Illusion. The Grand Illusion was released in 1937. It was Renoir's 21st film, but his first to be truly successful on such an international scale. No less than FDR himself said that every democratic person should see this film. It was immediately banned in Belgium and Italy, though Mussolini was quite an admirer of Renoir's. And in Germany, the Nazis took such exception to the film that propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels went as far as deeming the film cinematic public enemy number one. The Nazis attempted to destroy every copy of the film they could find, and it essentially vanished from the face of the earth at the onset of World War II until Renoir reconstructed it in 1958. And it's a good thing that he did, because if it had been lost, we would have been cheated out of one of the handful of truly great anti-war films and one of cinema's most lovely humanist statements. The plot revolves around a group of prisoners of war in World War I, Two French officers are shot down on a reconnaissance mission by a German commandant and are delivered to a POW camp. And once in camp, through their daily activities that include everything from digging escape tunnels to communal meals to putting on a musical review, we begin to see the distinctions of class and race and religion that might have previously seemed insurmountable. They begin to melt away and new fraternal bonds are forged out of the common miseries foisted upon a people during wartime. An escape plot is hatched, but foiled by an untimely transfer to a new camp. It doesn't take long before these prisoners, some reunited, they begin their escape plans anew, and liberty for some is achieved at the cost of the supreme sacrifice of another. The escapees take refuge at the farm of a German war widow, and she and her daughter shelter and nourish them, giving their wounds time to heal and giving herself and her daughter some semblance of family for a Christmas that would have otherwise been completely devoid of cheer. And after recuperating, the last we see of our intrepid pair is them struggling through the snow of a neutral Switzerland. And we end on this reluctantly optimistic note as our heroes have escaped. But the question remains, what will become of the world they are escaping to? From the get-go, one of the things that stands out in the movie is the characterization and the characters that Renoir uh, draws. These these aren't caricatures. Uh, They seem more fully formed and more realistic in that sense. It's a testament to the writing that character detail comes through from reference and inference rather than outright statement. And this is one of the things that allows these characters to transcend the level of cardboard cutout and achieve a modicum of reality. As the film opens, we're introduced to Marachal the pilot and Captain Debwaldu, These are two characters who couldn't be more dissimilar. One is casual in demeanor, ruggedly handsome, uh, very much a devil-may-care individual. And uh, and the other is is, is more aristocratic in bearing, uh, very fastidious and restrained almost to a fault. And in a two-minute sequence, we're given enough information to get to the heart of who these characters really are. Most certainly. All the aspects of filmmaking at Renoir and Company's command 
from the excellent screenplay to the detailed costumes to the considerable skill of the actors, it all conspires to demonstrate the depth of characterization with this subtle but detail-rich sequence. It provides us with the foundation that we need to understand these men, and it quickly and elegantly puts us on excellent footing to learn more about them as they learn more about each other in the coming weeks and months of captivity. There's two major camp sequences in the film. There's the, uh, the, the initial camp they arrive at, Halbach, and then there's several prison transfers. They eventually end up at Vinnersborn. Through the use of montage, uh, we see the various signposts at the camps that they've stopped along the way, but there's never actually any indication of how long they're there. You only know later on through information given that uh, they've made several escape attempts while at these various other camps. There's never any indication of war, period. In fact, the event that sets all of this in motion, when Rothenstein shoots down our French officers, you never actually see combat occur. You never see any indication of wartime life except what occurs inside the walls of the prison camps themselves. The funny thing is that was actually initially a budgetary considera uh, consideration. Renoir actually did have a scripted dogfight scene and couldn't actually get the financing or the airplanes to actually shoot it, so for convenience sake, he just cut from one scene directly to the next scene after the dogfight. And I think that actually kind of lends a little bit to the movie because you do not see war you don't see the the reality that's outside of their this construct i think it lends to a sense of of isolation in this movie that makes it that much more effective one of the things that i did really pick up uh watching the film a few times is uh there's this there's this idea that carries throughout the movie that these people are outside of the reality of the war, the great war that's going on at one point, there's a character who, looking at a group of German recruits outside of the window and noting how young and fresh-faced they all look, comments, out there, the children play soldiers. And here, soldiers play like children. And he's referring to a scene uh, where the soldiers are actually getting ready to put on a show, and they're, sorry, the POWs are getting ready to put on a show, and they're trying on costumes, and they're building sets. But after watching the movie a few times, I realized this idea kind of carries throughout the entire movie. I'm not necessarily sure that this was intentional, but it definitely does strike me as a recurring motif. At various times, you do get the sense that these people are kind of going through these motions. They're playing at what seems like a reality because they don't actually get to interact and participate in the war that's going on outside their walls. They all desperately want to escape for that express purpose, but unfortunately, until then, they're biding their time. There's a few scenes that reinforce this throughout. At one point, when they're at the uh, Vindersborn Fortress in the second half of the movie, uh, there's just a random insert shot as the mail is being distributed, and you can see a group of uh, POWs off in the background just having a snowball fight. At another point in the movie, as Marischal and de Beaulieu are being paraded in front of German troops, Raffenstein, commenting on their attitude, uh, says uh, they enjoy playing soldiers. Even during the commentary, during a scene where a character appears to be in peril, Peter Cowie makes the observation that at no point do we ever feel as if this character is in mortal danger, because in essence they all appear to just be playing at life. It keeps coming up again throughout the movie, even into the farmhouse sequence in the third act, after Marischal and Rosenthal have made their final escape 
and they're living under the protection of the German widow. There's this sense of uh, Marshall playing at domesticity. Uh, at no point do you actually think that he will actually decide to stay here, decide to retire here, because ultimately the whole point of the movie, and the, the whole point of the escape is to get back across the lines so they can rejoin the fight. And that's the most important thing for these characters. It definitely takes place in a world that we don't completely recognize, and not only for the elements of unreality, sort of this idealized, romanticized notion of what life in a prison camp must have been like, but also because the film itself is lamenting an era that has already passed it by in 1937. It takes place in World War I, but is obviously looking forward. It's working under the looming specter of World War II, and it's lamenting a world in which war is no longer gentlemanly. The tone is set right away when von Raffenstein shoots down the French pilots and sends his soldier to retrieve them, telling him that if they're officers, invite them for lunch. When de Bueldu is being taken into prison camp initially and the German guard searches him somewhat roughly, he objects and the guard says, this is war, to which de Bueldu replies, you can still conduct it courteously. It's a notion that's as antiquated as it is admirable, but it's definitely not anything we recognize, certainly in this day and age. It also takes place in a world before the German character was so unfortunately tainted by the Nazi party. The Germans in this film are just as sympathetic as everyone else. In fact, I don't think there are any unsympathetic characters in this film. That's the thing that really stuck out with me, is that at no point were any of the guards your standard caricatures. Uh, they weren't sadists. They weren't brutish. They were all very, if not polite, at the very least, civilized. And that definitely goes against the grain of what you've come to expect in any POW prison break movie. Uh, and that did stand out for that reason. Most definitely. The whole thing is just simply populated by people of all nations. French, German, English, Russian who are all equally burdened by this terrible war, and they all, guards and prisoners, simply want it to be over. The basic humanity of everyone overrides every other concern in this film. For example, Rosenthal, the Jewish prisoner, in what had to be a direct stab at the stereotypes being presented by Nazis at the time, he makes life in the camp much more luxurious than many of the prisoners' home lives probably would have been because of his generosity in sharing the extravagant parcels that his family sends. Relations between the prisoners and guards, especially the guard Arthur, are downright convivial. They seem to have an understanding, sort of some sense of we're all in this together. The German characters are actually the ones who protest, saying this war is too long which I think contemporary audiences can certainly find empathy with that point. But there are certain things that I don't think the great majority of us can understand and I hope never have to be able to empathize with. For instance, the scene where the costumes for the musical review arrive. One of the younger soldiers takes the women's clothing, puts it on, comes back into the rehearsal hall, and everything comes to a complete standstill just because of the fact that it has been so long since any of these men have seen a woman. The happiness and the confusion and the nostalgia, all of those things that play across the faces of those characters at that moment 
are things that we can't really appreciate in this day and age with a military that has both men and women serving full time. And the other thing that I think we can't really empathize with is the distance at which you can conduct a war, the difference that makes. The world that exists in the Grand Illusion, where enemies show such respect for one another, and in some cases, affection, it's much easier to conduct an impersonal and brutal war when you can do it from a much greater distance. When you have to look an enemy in the eye, one human being to another, it fosters a sympathy and a respect that, for the most part, disappeared after World War I. And that's actually something that I think is actually quite ironic because by you know by all accounts World War 1 was the beginning of modern brutality in the theater of war. I think up until that point there was certain expectations of war being a civilized thing. There were rules, there were but with World War 1 and the advent of chemical warfare, not to mention the fallout of the flu that killed almost if not more people than the actual war itself, that was the moment when the world at large suddenly realized that an entirely new level of violence and brutality was possible in the world, which makes the civility of the war in Grand Illusion that much more ironic. At one point, Renoir was quoted as saying that he didn't want to make a film about the soldiers in the trenches. Uh, that was not his interest. He did want to make something that contained a fair bit of nostalgia for the other experience, uh, the people that couldn't go out and they couldn't fight. Earlier you mentioned the multinational cast of soldiers, the Russians, the British, the French, the Germans. Uh, one thing that was fairly unique for this film, especially at the time, is that Renoir made the conscious decision to actually have these characters speak in their native language. Previous to him, I believe Pabst uh, had done something similar, but this was one of the first times it was done with so many characters in so many languages throughout the entirety of a movie. The Germans spoke to each other in German. The French spoke to each other in French. Uh, they all do speak in their native languages. And there's one very, very important exception to this. De Beaulieu and Raffenstein eventually develop their relationship and their, their affection to each other to the point that Raffenstein and De Beaulieu occasionally address each other in English, which is neither of their native languages. And it seems that these moments usually come at... They're most intimate when they actually want to have moments that are truly between themselves apart from those around them. And it happens at three key points in the movie. The most important point in the movie comes at the climax of De Beaulieu and Raffenstein's relationship. One of the very last things they say to each other before the big action, Raffenstein addresses De Beaulieu in English and De Beaulieu responds in English. I think this is this is very important because it does seem to set up uh, an even deeper level of, of intimacy and privacy between these two individuals that, for all intents and purposes, are enemies. They should not have ever gotten this close, but because of their mutual respect and admiration, it was inevitable that they would come together. If they couldn't be friends, at the very least, they could have that mutual respect. It's also indicative of the other very important thread that runs throughout the film, and that is uh, class consciousness. When these two characters lapse into English, not only is it indicative of the intimacy that they share, but it's also to exclude the other less worldly, less traveled. Right. The, other, the others don't have the education to have learned a third language. No, or even a fourth or fifth. Yeah. It's, it's implied that these are very worldly men, they belong to the aristocratic class, quite obviously, and 
the intimacy that they share on this linguistic level, it's a demonstration of one of the points that Renoir was fond of making, which was you put a French peasant and a French aristocrat in a room, they don't necessarily have much to say to each other, but you put a French farmer and a Chinese farmer in a truck together, and regardless of language barriers, they have far more in common. How class works on horizontal levels rather than vertical. It's like when when they're initially captured uh, and they sit down at the dinner table, the first person that Marischal sits and has a conversation with is a German mechanic right. who actually used to work in uh, Lyon, I think he said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that same token, Ruffenstein and uh, Debole, you immediately gravitate toward each other. I think the relationship between these two characters is really the linchpin of the film. Again, especially when seen in the context of World War II being just on the horizon. The pivotal conversation that you referred to earlier, it occurs after they're transferred to Ventersborn, in which both men essentially lament the fact that the aristocracy, the class that they belong to, is no longer necessary. The French captain is much more accepting of that fact, saying that you cannot stop the march of time, which was pretty symbolic in 1937 to tell the German commandant that the process of democratization will prevail. Rothenstein, on the other hand, in his rigid corset embraces, is not quite as willing to concede to the inevitable. One of my favorite setups in the film tells you everything you need to know about Rauffenstein right from the beginning, and that's the setup where you get the camera panning across his room at Wintersborn. You start with an establishing shot of a gigantic crucifix that looms over his room. As the camera pans uh, slowly to the right, uh, we get a bottle of champagne, we get a copy of Casanova, then we suddenly get several guns, a timepiece, a selection of whips, some swords. This is a very, very uh, aristocratic Prussian man, uh, and these are the accoutrements of his station in life. The way he carries himself, right down to the uh, symbolism of the back brace that he wears, it shows a character that is very restrained and very austere and very, very much a man of importance. Dibwell Du, on the other hand, He sees the writing on the wall, and I think in his heart, he has a faith that the situation that's going to replace the aristocracy is probably better for everyone in general. He demonstrates just how much he believes in it when he sacrifices himself for, as Rothenstein condescendingly puts it, a Rosenthal, a Marischal. Sure, duty is duty, but Boldu's act goes far beyond that. Plus, as he says, when Rothenstein is tenderly administering to him on his deathbed, at least as tenderly as you can administer to someone without removing your leather gloves, from wounds that Rothenstein had no choice but to inflict upon him. Again, duty is duty. De Boildu says that dying in war is preferable for a dying aristocracy. Essentially, it's much more noble than outliving your usefulness and becoming obsolete a relic. To survive means to face the uncertain aftermath of this conflict completely rudderless, and class provides no exemption for anyone in that case. And something you made me think of when you mentioned the camera panning across Rothenstein's quarters that we haven't addressed much so far is the beautiful, really subtle and graceful camera work and direction that takes place in this film. Most of the action happens in very cramped, very claustrophobic quarters, and Renoir engages in a lot of long takes, very fluid movement. You don't get a lot of frenetic cuts. You get to move gently around a room and see 
everything that's going on, background and foreground, faces. The films prior to this, at least early on, were far more static. And this film is really where you begin to see the flowering of the style that's epitomized by later films of his like Rules of the Game. It's not sumptuous and ostentatious like the camera movement of Max Ophels, for instance, but it is definitely a much more graceful and poetic style than you see in practically every other prisoner of war movie. Renoir really does a good job of utilizing uh, either motion of camera or motion of character to make the best out of what would otherwise be fairly cramped small sets. Uh, There's scenes that were actually very carefully choreographed with characters pacing within one room, crisscrossing each other. None of these scenes were ad-libbed. They were all very, very carefully choreographed, yet they still retain an air of casualness so that they're completely believable. Another thing he did to kind of open up the shot, so to speak, he built the sets uh, adjoining an existing uh, military base and had windows on the sets that looked out to the base in the background. So as the characters are conducting their action in the foreground, there's still action and life going on in the background to add an extra sense of depth to the shot that wouldn't have existed if he'd just done it in a cold, dead studio. The one example that comes to mind, and it's a really simple, elegant example, I think, is when Marischal is in solitary confinement. The movement of the guards into his room, different men following the same path, interacting with him, so you get a sense of the routine and the monotony that is driving Marischal crazy at this point. And at one point, Marischal attempts to escape from the solitary confinement cell, runs out of the cell, leaves the guard behind, and even then there's no cut. The camera pans to the door. You hear the action take place outside of the scene where he's obviously being subdued and brought back. But never does the camera leave the room. When he's brought back to his cell, it follows the exact same path once again. It's a great example. The camera just moving from right to left to right to left. And it's the little things like that that make all the difference in this film. This film is essentially about humanity. Those little things that make you understand exactly what it feels like to be this character. The moments of humanity dominate throughout the movie. Examples like the foot washing scene early on when Marischal is brought into the first prison camp. He suffered an injury to his arm and because of that a fellow prisoner is washing his feet and there is nothing necessarily symbolic about it beyond the fact that one man is doing for another what he simply cannot just out of brotherhood. Another thing, probably one of my favorite little moments in the film is when Marischal is returned from solitary confinement and they are discussing the potential of having to stick to the escape plan and leave him behind just at that point the guards bring him back and Rosenthal as he is preparing dinner for everyone like he usually does turns his back and cries from relief that they do not have to turn their back on him they don't have to leave Marischal behind again thumbing their nose at the Nazi propaganda showing Rosenthal to be the most human, to completely debunk the Jewish stereotypes that were being circulated at the time. Rosenthal himself is is a very good counterpoint character to Rauffenstein. Rosenthal comes from money. At one point, he actually 
Nouveau Riche. Nouveau Riche. Uh, but he does he does uh, start enumerating the uh, the holdings, the, the chateaus that his family has, and the vineyards, and the. Uh, at some point, he said, uh, "We have three galleries of ancestors." So outside, before the war, Rosenthal was very, very, very well off. However, because he's Jewish, he still falls well below the social strata of most of the other characters, and at different points does come under scorn from even Marischal at one point. Nonetheless, his character retains a humanity that almost makes him the everyman character that seems to be almost necessary in any movie. We almost relate more with Rosenthal than Marischal because, like the audience, he is a witness. He is the spectator. He observes the things that are going on around him just as we're observing the things that are going on in the camp. And going back to the in, the idea of, of the humanity of these characters, so many of them really are just regular Joes, uh, or regular Jeans, as it were. Marichal and de Boileau didn't even know each other before their initial mission that leads them to end up in the prison camp. Some of the characters, uh, they're not even given names. Uh, there's the school teacher, who ironically ends up in war, uh, as he puts it, because he's a vegetarian. He and his brother grew up sickly. The doctor suggested they stop eating meat. Uh, the brother refused to stop eating meat and stayed sick. The school teacher stopped eating meat and was healthy enough to get drafted and suddenly finds himself a prisoner of war in Germany, fearing that his wife has been cheating on him back home. The other, there's another character of the engineer. There's uh, the character of uh, Cartier, who for the most part is referred to as the actor. Uh, these are just regular guys that had regular lives outside of this theater of war that for one reason or another, whether they volunteered or were drafted in, suddenly find themselves hundreds of miles away from home, captive, longing to go back to the lives they had before they left. And the one character who cannot get back to the life she had before the war is Dita Parlo's character, Elsa, the war widow who owns the farm where Marischal and Rosenthal take refuge once they escape. The war has cost her her husband, her brothers. She makes mention of the family table that's now completely empty because the war has decimated her family. Even with that, her essential humanity shines through and she takes in these two men who are obviously suffering and afraid and she gives them shelter even though the countrymen of these two particular men are responsible for her having only her daughter anymore. All of that goes away when you're focusing on the essential human-to-human -human relationships. The main concern of everyone throughout this film is just to simply end all this suffering. And it's funny because this actually even comes out in the final moments as they're finally making their escape through the snow. Coming up on the side of another mountain is a troop of Germans that see them start taking a beat on them and fire off a couple of shots before their commander tells them to stop. No, they're in Switzerland. Good for them, the other soldier replies. Even at that moment, they are almost envious of the fact that for at least two people, the war has at least temporarily come to an end. Of course, one of the main attractions to the Criterion Collection for film buffs is the number of special features that are offered on each disc. Being an earlier effort in the series, actually number one, the first effort in the series, the features are a little bare-boned compared to what we're used to now, but that being said, they're still extremely interesting. Oddly enough, I think out of the original five, it's the only one that never got a reissue with 
an expansion of uh, the bonus features. And unfortunately, because uh, Studio Canal has reclaimed the rights, it's now going out of print, and so that probably will never happen. Having said that, the special features that it does have are actually not bad. A really nice inclusion in the special features is Jean Renoir's personal introduction to the film. In it, he shows some photographs he took during the war. He talks about giving Jean Gabin his uniform that he wore in combat, and you can get a really good notion of just how devoted he was to eliminating these barriers, race, religion, class, and how much he was devoted to the democratic ideal. The commentary from Peter Cowie is fantastic, and he's done several for the Criterion Collection by now. He's one of my favorite people to listen to. I always learn something from him. One of the other standout supplements is the piece that actually talks about the restoration of uh, this particular print for the Criterion Collection. Uh, if you've ever actually been interested in the kind of dedication and kind of work that this company puts into its finished product, uh, this is a really, really great example to get an idea of what goes into it. There's a short featurette that illuminates exactly how much work has gone into the restoration process. And you actually get side-by-side -side shots of uh, the original print with the grain and with the dirt and the scratches and the cigarette burns in the corner. And then you see the first layer of uh, restoration. And then you see that uh, as uh, technology improves, how uh, they were able to clean up the uh, secondary print that at that point had been the cleaned up print. You actually have a section where you watch a specific sequence of film as it's put through about three or four different layers of cleanup, as it were. Four phases altogether. Four phases altogether, so that you can actually compare what audiences from, say, 30 years ago had uh, to view compared to what we are able to see now. Criterion knew that with this being their initial offering, they did want to give this particular film uh, the best treatment it possibly could. I do think that for 1998 technology, they actually did manage to go above and beyond and present a very, very beautiful print. So overall, the special features are good, not necessarily great compared to what we've been spoiled by in the later releases in the series, but for 1998 and an initial offering, it's certainly of great benefit to anyone who's interested in learning more about this film, how it was made, how it was saved from oblivion. Which and is an interesting story in itself because it was confiscated by the Nazis. They took a copy of the negative and stored it, uh, was it in Munich? Yep. Uh, and so eventually the photo lab where the uh, original negative uh, was stored was actually destroyed in the war. Uh, if the Nazis hadn't actually been so gung-ho to suppress the movie and house it, it's very likely that the film wouldn't have survived, at least uh, at the very least in the form that we know it today. In all likelihood, uh, any prints that would have remained would have been of completely substandard quality. And it's also very likely that because the film was re-edited on several occasions, uh, Renoir might not have been able to restore it to its intended state. Much less have been available for the extensive restoration process you see demonstrated in these special features, ending up with the pristine copy that's available on this DVD. <music> on to 
honestly, we have only really begun to scratch the surface on this film. There is so much about it that we want to talk about. We could sit and talk about it for hours and hours, most likely. People have been talking about it for 70 plus years now. It just goes to demonstrate the durability and the truth of the message that it contains about how important these human connections are. And just how skillfully Renoir demonstrates these things to us. I might have mentioned it earlier, but the first time I did see this movie, it did leave me slightly cold, but I think that had more to do with the fact that I've never necessarily warmed up to early French cinema. Having said that, on reputed viewing, I did find a lot more warmth and humanity in this movie than I had initially anticipated. And I think it's definitely a movie that stands up to repeated viewing. Uh, which is not necessarily something you can say about a lot of movies of that era. There's a lot of depth here. There's layers to peel back. And because of that, I honestly think that it's that much more rewarding. I love it more every time I watch it. Okay, that does it for episode one, Jean Renoir's The Grand Illusion. The DVD is out of print right now. You can pick up copies at the usual places, Amazon, eBay, you may be paying collector's prices for it. If you'd just like to see the film, you can either rent it or stream it via Netflix. Uh, the print that's actually currently streaming on Netflix is actually the Studio Canal print, as they currently own the rights, uh, as opposed to the Criterion print that was streaming earlier this year. But if you've never seen the movie, it is worth a shot. We both heartily recommend it, that's for sure. And please feel free to leave any comments or send criticisms or questions. Our email address is criterionbythenumbers at gmail.com. We certainly appreciate hearing from everybody. And join us next time for episode number two when we discuss Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. I'm Cole Rolane. And I'm Bobby Munoz. Thanks for listening.